and welcome to this audio edition of Philip Pusher's program notes for upcoming concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. I'm Rich Caparella. Concerts by the CSO on Thursday, October 21st through Saturday the 23rd feature guest conductor James Comlin and piano soloist Alexander Gavriljuk. The program includes Chamber Symphony for Strings by Dmitry Shostakovich, the orchestration by Rudolf Barshein, Prokofiev's Piano Concerto No. 1, and Schubert's Symphony No. 3. Here are Philip Pusher's program notes on the Prokofiev Piano Concerto No. 1, a work lasting about 16 minutes. When Prokofiev first arrived in Chicago in 1918, for so long a city of mythical status for him, it was not what he expected. I anticipated being bowled over by Chicago's overwhelming energy and mobility, and I did feel something of this, he wrote in his diary on September 5th, but the city itself seemed somehow cramped and unattractive with large tracts of soot-stained houses. With time on his hands before he caught the night-trained New York City, he walked the downtown Chicago streets and admired the glittering shop window displays, even though he knew that shops were dangerous places for a man who had no more than 20 cents in his pocket. He took a three-hour bus tour of the city, but quickly lost patience staring out the window at Chicago's string of parks. Prokofiev had been determined to travel to the United States for months. Here was wretchedness. There, life brimming over, he wrote in his diary from Russia late in 1917. Here, slaughter and barbaric rhetoric. There, cultivated life. The United States was where he had long envisioned launching his international career as a composer. And the day he finally got his travel visa on May 18th marked the turning point. Farewell, my old dreams. Hail new shores, he wrote, and then after the first bewildering day in Chicago, he grew even more determined. It was time for stage two, to conquer this America I had come to. After a string of days in New York, when his conquest seemed less and less likely, his fate changed at last. Today brought my first significant victory, he wrote on September 20th. He played for Frederick Stock, the music director of the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, who was visiting the city on business. Stock went into ecstasies, he wrote, and offered Prokofiev an invitation to perform and conduct in Chicago in November. They agreed on a program. Prokofiev would play his first piano concerto and conduct the Scythian Suite. Both would be U.S. premieres. I am gripped by complete panic about Spanish influenza, he wrote two weeks later. Today, the newspapers are reporting thousands of cases a day just in New York with a 5% mortality rate, even though the next day he went shopping, ordering a complete wardrobe for $500, clearly in anticipation of an active new life before the public. New York, he wrote, is relatively in a state of grace, as in other cities there is true pandemic. Chicago is getting its full supply of Spanish influenza, Stock wrote to Francis Glesner, his friend, and with her husband, Box M. Ticket Holder, in Orchestra Hall on October 16th. The town is full of it, so bad indeed that all theaters and other public places were ordered closed yesterday. No concerts this week. In fact, we may have to close up for weeks to come. As it turned out, the orchestra went only two weeks without performances. By November 1st, the Chicago Board of Health lifted its ban, theaters reopened, and concert life resumed. 
When Prokofiev returned to Chicago on December 1st to prepare for his debut, he felt like a different man, buoyed by good reviews in New York City, where he had played a recital, and anticipating his first appearances with the Chicago Orchestra. He stayed at the Congress Hotel because this time he said he had come as a budding, a gentleman of standing. The windows of his room looked out over Lake Michigan, and he enjoyed strolling up Michigan Avenue because he now had money in his pocket. His spirits were not even dampened by his disappointment that the lake was always shrouded in mist, or by his distaste for the hotel lobby so dimly lit and lugubrious that it seemed like the perfect setting for an assignation or a murder. What on earth can have prompted the Americans to come up with a haul like this? By the time Prokofiev returned, Stock had temporarily stepped down as the orchestra's music director, giving in to wartime pressure to get his American citizenship papers in order at long last before he stepped back on the podium. The orchestra was temporarily under the leadership of Eric de Lamerter, Stock's assistant. Although Prokofiev's rehearsals for the Scythian suite went well, the orchestra was splendid, he wrote after the final run-through, he was disappointed with de Lamerter, who did not appear to know the score of the concerto well enough. So, I took charge of the rehearsal myself, leaving de Lamerter off to one side. One day between rehearsals, Prokofiev had lunch with Cyrus McCormick, Jr., the Chicago industrialist and trustee of the orchestra, who had met him in Russia the year before and arranged the introduction to Stock. Another day, he met with Cleofonte Campanini, the head of the Chicago Opera, and they began to make plans for the premiere of an opera in Chicago, perhaps The Gambler, which Prokofiev played through in part at the piano, or Love for Three Oranges, which he had not yet even begun. The Chicago Tribune described Prokofiev as a young Russian who has been getting attention elsewhere as a composer of advanced ideas when it previewed his Chicago debut. For some reason, I was greeted by an ovation from the absolutely full hall when I stepped on the platform, Prokofiev wrote on December 6th, the day of the first concert in Chicago. After his performance of the first piano concerto, he took seven curtain calls, I am compiling statistics of these during my American sojourn. It is very much in the American spirit. Campanini came to see him in the green room. He said he had never heard anything like it. The press realized they were witnessing something exceptional. The appearance here of the young Russian Sergei Prokofiev at the Chicago Symphony Orchestra concert was the most startling and, in a sense, important musical event that has happened in this town for a long time, so wrote Henriette Weber in The Herald and Examiner. Personally, he is middle-sized and blonde, somewhat gangling about the arms and shoulders, and entirely businesslike in demeanor, reported the journal. His business is his music while he is on stage, and he would seem to resent even the time it takes to bow. The music itself caused a stir. Russian genius displays weird harmonies, was the headline in The American. The music was of such savagery, so brutally barbaric, Weber wrote, that it seemed almost grotesque to see civilized men in modern dress with modern instruments performing it. By the same token, it was big, sincere, true. The Chicago public loved it. Every man and woman there reacted to it, Weber continued, and Prokofiev was given a thundering ovation that at least in the slight degree expressed the tumultuous emotions he inspired. 
The first piano concerto must have been an earful for an early 20th century Chicago audience not yet even familiar with Stravinsky's music. The Chicago Symphony had played only his four-minute fireworks. No American orchestra had yet tackled the Rite of Spring, and they were complete strangers to Prokofiev's work. In fact, the concerto dates from 1911, two years before the riotous premiere of Stravinsky's Ballet in Paris. Prokofiev was still a student at the St. Petersburg Conservatory. It's the first time I'll have played with an orchestra, he said before the premiere. I'll have to know it by heart to play it confidently. By the time he got to Chicago, he had played the piece again at his graduation ceremony and had moved on to writing works in an even more adventurous language, including his first violin concerto, the second piano concerto that was soon lost and later rewritten, and the Scythian Suite that was also on the Chicago program. The concerto begins without warning, with a headlong theme introduced in the piano against a throbbing orchestral accompaniment. The virtuosic solo writing makes it clear from the first measure that Prokofiev was a highly accomplished, even virtuosic pianist. Though the pace eventually slackens and textures frequently lighten, the concerto moves unchecked from beginning to end. Technically, there are the traditional three movements, but each is direct and pithy, and there is no break between them. One flows naturally, almost inevitably, into the next. When the piece ends, as it began after some 15 action-packed minutes, you sense that you have heard a single story, tightly packed, ingeniously put together, breathlessly told, without so much as a momentary digression. The day after Prokofiev's Chicago debut, he went to see Campanini in his office. They bickered over fees, but finally agreed to present the premiere of Love for Three Oranges in Chicago. Prokofiev returned to Chicago in November 1921, 100 years ago, next month, a place for which he had come to have warm appreciation. That December, he gave the cities two of the most important nights in its cultural history and certainly two highlights of his career. On December 16th, he and Stock gave the world premiere of his Piano Concerto No. 3 in Orchestra Hall, and two weeks later, he conducted the world premiere of Love for Three Oranges in the Auditorium Theater. Even the appearance of the celebrated Richard Strauss, then arguably the most famous composer in the world who was in Chicago to conduct his lurid opera Zolome, could not steal the limelight from Prokofiev's Chicago Conquest. Next week, the Chicago Symphony will once again perform Prokofiev's third piano concerto, which has taken its place as one of the great classics of 20th century music to celebrate the centennial of its premiere on the stage of Orchestra Hall. Notes by Philip Husher on Prokofiev's Piano Concerto No. 1. And now on to Schubert's Symphony No. 3, a work lasting about 25 minutes. Schubert's contemporaries, even the few who understood the magnitude of his talent, did not think of him as a composer of symphonies. Antonio Salieri, who was one of his first teachers and a man who knew the Viennese music scene as well as anyone in the early years of the 19th century, called Schubert a genius and said that he can write anything, songs, masses, string quartets, but he failed even to mention the symphony. Not one of Schubert's symphonies was publicly known during the composer's lifetime. Most of them weren't even published until the very end of the 19th century, more than 50 years after Schubert's death. 
1894, while Antonin Dvorak was living in the United States, he wrote an article for the Century Illustrated Monthly magazine considering the reasons Schubert made his way so slowly to popular appreciation and why the symphonies in particular did not gain the immediate admiration of those by other composers. He was young, modest, and unknown, Dvorak writes, and musicians did not hesitate to slight a symphony which they would have felt bound to study had it borne the name of Beethoven or Mozart. The comparison with Beethoven is both inevitable and misleading. Schubert and Beethoven were composing symphonies at the same time in Vienna during the first years of the 19th century, never once meeting, nor even crossing paths until the very end of Beethoven's life. Each of Beethoven's symphonies was premiered to considerable fanfare in one of Vienna's main public theaters within a year or so of its completion. Schubert's were privately performed in the same city and quickly forgotten. All nine of Beethoven's symphonies were published during his lifetime. Not one piece of Schubert's orchestral music appeared in print during his. And yet, for all his apparent lack of public success with the form, Schubert persisted. He started more symphonies than Beethoven and finished nearly as many, all in a shorter period of time. While Beethoven composed his nine over the span of 25 years, Schubert completed seven and left another six unfinished in just 17 years. Schubert was working on his newest one, the so-called Symphony No. 10, at the time of his death. In 1995, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra performed Luciano Berrio's haunting and imaginative rendering, which is based on Schubert's sketches for this symphony. For Dvorak, writing in 1894, Schubert's first six symphonies were recent discoveries, as they were for all musicians in the late 19th century. They were published for the first time in 1884 and 85. He had recently begun to conduct the symphonies, and he highly recommended them to others. The more I study them, Dvorak concluded, the more I marvel. Written in little more than four years, from sometime in 1813 to February 1818, they are among the most impressive and substantial of Schubert's so-called early works, although, as Donald Tovey pointed out long ago, every work Schubert left us is an early work. They are so refined and assured that it is difficult to remember that they are the works of a teenage boy. Schubert's early symphonies come from the busiest time of his life, and 1815 and 1816, the years in which he wrote the third and fourth symphonies, were particularly productive. He was still a schoolmaster then, a prisoner of the classroom who filled his free time writing the music that would one day make him famous. Schubert's off hours produced an extraordinary harvest. In 1815 alone, he composed two piano sonatas, a set of variations on an original theme, dances for keyboard, a string quartet, two masses, and considerable miscellaneous choral works, four operas, including Claudina von Villabella, which lost its second and third acts, when the servants of Schubert's friend, Josef Hentenbrenner, used the manuscript to start fires during the cold winter of 1848. But there's more. Some 145 songs, including Earl Koenig, the Earl King, long considered his greatest, and the D major symphony, now known as number three. Not all of this music is important or memorable. Schubert must have been writing at breakneck speed and often well into the night. 
but much of it is unusually impressive regardless of the circumstances, and some of the songs in particular are among his finest works. They reveal a gift too strong and an imagination too vivid to be stifled even by the dull rigor of drilling, reluctant boys. Schubert's manuscript tells us that he began his third symphony on May 24th, the same day he wrote a piece for female chorus and horns. He had finished a one-act zingspiel five days earlier. In the next few days, he wrote several more choral works and a number of songs. He completed the Adagio Maestoso introduction and the first few pages of the Allegro of the symphony and then put the score aside. He returned to the Allegro on July 11th. The entire symphony was completed eight days later. Historians relish the tales of the occasional piece of music written at astonishing speed, but Schubert regularly did his best work in great haste. He once jotted down a song fully formed on the back of a cafe menu. Schubert knew the orchestra from the inside, and he began playing in the student ensemble of Vienna's Imperial and Royal City College at the age of 12, and we might well guess from listening to Symphony No. 3 that as an orchestral musician, he regularly played symphonies by Haydn and Mozart, as well as the first two by Beethoven. Yet for all his grounding in the great classical school, Schubert early on revealed a distinctive way with traditional forms. Any composer capable of writing one of the most extraordinary songs in the literature, Gretchen am Spinrade, at the age of 17, had quickly found his own voice. By the time he wrote that song in 1814, Schubert had finished his first symphony. And by the time he completed his third, less than a year later, Schubert had written what many composers would gladly claim as a life's work, and he had traveled light years in the perfection of his own style. The first movement of the Third Symphony begins, like many of Haydn's, with a slow introduction. The manuscript shows that Schubert struggled with the bubbling clarinet theme that launches the Allegro con brio, scoring it first for oboe and horns, and then for strings before finding the right sound. The movement itself is fluent and highly untroubled. The coda returns to the ascending scales of the introduction. Schubert originally planned to write an adagio for the second movement. He even sketched a theme in this tempo, but he settled on a fresh and unassuming allegretto instead. The third movement is a forceful minuet, and its trio a charming waltz. The finale, marked presto vivace, begins pianissimo and then explodes with energy. Program notes by Philip Huscher on Schubert's Symphony No. 3. I'm Rich Caparola. Thanks for listening.